Hello everybody, this is Dan Trott of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering today James chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. I'm going to call this section Taming the Tongue. Our context is this in the end of last chapter, chapter 2. James talked about faith and he said that faith without works is not faith but is rather dead. So we start now in verse 1 of James chapter 3. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Now, James here says not many. He doesn't say no one should become a teacher, as John Gill says, because teachers are a gift to the body of Christ. He doesn't mean to say that, but he's perhaps referring to Jewish practice because the Jews had lots and lots and lots of rabbis. They were everywhere. The Jewish religion is famous for people studying all night and all day the intricacies of the Talmud and so forth. And maybe he's referring to that, but at any rate, in the body of Christ... There are a lot of people who want not to be teachers because it's about nonsense, but we need them. I, I remember in China, God, one of the biggest, biggest needs that you could think of for the Chinese church is teachers. They, they needed teachers. They, would, they didn't have anybody to teach them. So James is not saying that, that, that teacher teaching is a wonderful gift to the body of Christ. I used to de-emphasize it because in, Amer- in the American church, teachers dominated. You know, they get up and give a sermon every week and everybody's eyes glaze over and nobody learns what they're teaching because people don't listen to lectures too good. And so I said, no, let's have interactive meetings, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, interactive meetings where everybody shares. And I think I overreacted to it because you do need teaching. Keep people straight. Keep people on the straight and narrow way. You do need teachers. But if you're going to be a teacher, you will receive a stricter judgment. Now, why is that? Well, the NIV Study Bible points out the obvious. The reason is because teachers influence a lot of others besides themselves. So if a teacher goes bad, he's going to make a lot of other people go bad with him. So he he has a stricter judgment. That's just common sense. Now, in chapter 19, in chapter 1, verse 19 of James, James had said this, My dearly beloved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That was the section of James which I called How Not to Be Hung by the Tongue, because James, in that section of his letter, had a lot to say about people who can't control their tongues. But when he says everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak, that is especially true for teachers. Teachers should especially bridle their tongues. And that's, of course, what this whole section of Scripture, verses 1 through 12, is about, bridling the tongue, taming the tongue. Now, here's a great quote from Adam Clark about unqualified teachers in 19th century England. Quote, We have many masters, persons who undertake to show us the way of salvation, who know nothing of that way and are unsaved themselves. These are found among all descriptions of Christians and have been the means of bringing the ministerial office into contempt. Their case is awful. They shall receive greater condemnation than common sinners. They have not only sinned in thrusting themselves into that office to which God has never called them, But through their insufficiency, the flocks over whom they have assumed the mastery perish for lack of knowledge, and their blood will require at the watchman's hand, and their blood will God require at the watchman's hand. Blockheads are common, and knaves and hypocrites may be found everywhere. Are you listening, Joel Osteen? Are you listening, Kenneth Copeland? Blockheads are common, and knaves and hypocrites may be found everywhere. James chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who is able to control his whole body. Now, John Gill points out that when John says we all stumble, 
James is including himself in this humble admission, showing how humble he is, because James admits that he stumbles. Now, I would submit to you that that's not necessarily true. James could be using the word we in the sense of we human beings all stumble in many ways. In fact, he does use that in other places, as Adam Clark points out, for example, in James 3.3. Now, when we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. Well, James wasn't a horse breaker. He was just saying, wouldn't we human beings do this? Talking about a generic human being. That's the very next verse. So that context, the we is not meant to include James. James 3, 6, four verses later, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. Our bodies, he's talking about human beings' bodies, not himself, because James was not setting the world on fire with his tongues. Let, let me finish reading verse 6. It the tongue pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Well, when James says our bodies are doing this, our bodies have tongues that set the whole course of the of life of that body on hell, uh, on fire, set on fire by hell. Is he referring to himself? No, he's talking about human beings in general, sinful human beings. James three nine. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. We, does that mean James is including himself in the, in the company of men who are cursing other men? No, of course it does not. Well, even if you admit that, even, even, even if you claim that he's speaking rhetorically, we all stumble in many ways, and he's including himself in the company of those he's criticizing, he's only saying he's a stumbler, not that he's a false teacher. He wasn't doing all the gross sins the, her, the heretical teachers were doing. All right, so I'm going to assume this is, he's talking about we in the sense of all human beings stumble in many ways, and of course we do. This possibility of stumbling is especially present with teachers because they say many words, as John Gill says. You know, I, I'm, my goal is to have a teaching on every chapter of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 before I die. And listen, when you cover that much ground, you're going to make mistakes. I'm perfectly prepared to go back and re-record when I discover errors. And what I've said, I do the best I can because I am subject to strict judgment. I, I think of an example. I was teaching this young Chinese woman on the Internet. I haven't met her yet, but I've, she's such a great student. And she, she's like a sponge, wants to learn the Bible. So I love teaching her. And I got to Luke 21, the Luke version of the Olivet Discourse. And I said, I'm going to give you the minority position, the Orthodox Preterist view, because that's the view I hold. First thing she says, is, what's the other view? I said, futurist. She says, I want to hear them both. And I just told her, that's too much trouble. If I go through all the what the future say, and I'm not exactly totally qualified, I, I, because I'm not teaching that position, to say what all futures say or what a lot of futures say, she says, I don't care. I want to hear them both. So guess what I did? I gave both sides of the issues I went through. I said, this is the preterist view. This is the futurist view. And when I got through, she said, I'm a futurist. I said, well, that's just great. <laughs> she came out on the wrong side of the issue. Later, she changed her mind when I went over some other scriptures. She says, oh, I think that sounds preterist. But my point is, is not whether preterism or futurism is accurate or not. My point is, is that when you're teaching somebody, you better do it fairly and objectively because what you say to them might affect them for the rest of their lives. And you've got to be careful. And if they want to hear both sides, you better give them both sides of this issue, including things you don't agree with. So someone who doesn't stumble is a mature man who is able to control his whole body. I know, Lord, you control your tongue, you control your whole body, and you don't ruin your life. And that is simple enough. However, Adam Clark, 
has come up with a what I call an off-the-wall interpretation of this. He cites Grotius, the famous jurist, international jurist who is also a Bible commentator. Clark and Grotius say that when James is talking about controlling his whole body, he's talking about his whole church, the body of Christ, the church. <laughs> no, folks, that's nuts. That's crazy. What he is saying here is if you're able to control your tongue, you could control yourself in all areas of life. In trying to prove that James was not talking about controlling his his body by controlling his tongue, but by is talking about controlling his church, Adam Clark, in favor of this somewhat strange proposition, says this, quote, Now, how a man's cautiousness, cautiousness in what he says can be a proof that he has every passion and appetite under control, I cannot see. Indeed, I have seen so many examples of a contrary kind that I have no doubt of the impropriety of this exposition. In other words, he's saying he's seen a lot of people who can control his tongues, but they can't control anything else. Now think about this. If you, if you control your tongue, you can control the, your whole body. That seems to be saying that this, it's, it, it's easier to control sexual lust for a man than it is to control his tongue. James certainly seems to imply that. He maybe doesn't explicitly say that. Now that's amazing because men have a hard time controlling their sexual lust. It's harder to control the tongue. It really is. And that's why the Internet culture, social media culture, has become so toxic and so poison that even far-left liberals are griping about it now. But just 100 of them just now signed a statement that says, what happened to debate and nuanced issues? Instead, it's just council country. Fire this person. Get rid of him. Shame him. Heap tons of abuse on his head. Some snowflake leftist Marxist is sitting by his computer in the privacy of his home where nobody can challenge his idiotic positions and he can just say what kind of, he can spew out any kind of vitriol he wants and nobody says anything. And then he says something that makes somebody else mad and so they spout out and the next thing you know they got to get up and make these groveling apologies. I'm so sorry like this last NFL player that put out something, quoted Adolf Hitler and Louis Farrakhan in favor of something that was supposed to uplift black people. He said this guy was black. And, of course, he was condemned for it. But if he'd have just thought before he put that stuff up on the Internet, his life would have been a lot better. And there's lots of people doing stuff like that. So control your tongue, folks. You'll be a lot happier. We're going out of verses 3, 4, and 5. Now, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites. Now these metaphors are fairly clear. They're talking about how a little tiny, tiny thing can have big, big consequences. For example, you've got a little tiny bit in the, uh, that you put into the mouth of a horse. A bit is about, what, four inches long and it's about... Maybe three, maybe a half inch in diameter, and you stick it in the horse, and all of a sudden, the horse, you pull left on the rein, the horse moves left. You pull right, the horse turns to the right. So that little tiny bit controls that huge, big old hunk of meat called a horse. Likewise, a ship, little tiny rudder, you know, huge ship. Rudder goes one way, that huge ship turns. Likewise, a little tiny fire, you go into uh, forest and you strike a match you put the match on the leaf and the next thing you know the whole fire forest is on fire and in flames 
Likewise, you say a little thing with your tongue. Oh, well, your tongue is a little small part of your body. Little tiny tongue, big, big body. But the little tongue will destroy your whole body. And your body is a synonym, excuse me, a symbol, a metaphor for your life. So you want to ruin your life? Run your tongue. You want to protect your life? Guard your tongue and don't say something stupid. It's not easy to do. If a bit is not put into the horse, the horse runs wild. If there's no rudder on a ship, the ship sails uncontrollably to the left or to the right. You don't control your tongue and your body goes left, right, up, and down until it's destroyed. Control your tongue. James 3 verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of fire on it sets the course of life on fire and is set on fire by hell. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. What does that mean, a world of unrighteousness? It's like a realm of unrighteousness, a place where unrighteousness rules. Adam Clark defines it as this, a mass, a great collection, and abundance. For example, we say, oh, that student is a world of trouble. That means there's a lot of trouble associated with that student. So that's what James is saying here. There's a lot of unrighteousness associated with the tongue. It it's one of the members of the body. When James says is placed among the parts of our bodies, it means that God created the body with lots of different parts, arms, legs, kidneys, and so forth. And there's that little tongue he put in, his, in, in our mouths. And that tongue pollutes the whole body. You start cursing people, you'll curse your whole body. You start spreading lies or slander or gossip, you'll set the course of your life on fire, which means wherever you go, your life is going to be in flames. Oh, this is great stuff here, great metaphors. Now that phrase, course of life, the King James translates it precisely as wheel of life, which is the little translation. I looked it up. Thayer's definition actually had the wheel. There is a wheel, and it's a wheel of life. Now, most other translations don't do it that way because that doesn't make a lot of sense, at least not to me. The Amplified Version has the wheel of birth, the cycle of man's nature, in other words, the course of your life from the time you're born to the time you die, the cycle of your nature, you know, birth, maturity, death. And that's probably what it means, even though it's not immediately obvious. The American Standard Version, which is an old-fashioned version, says calls it the wheel of nature. The Lexham English Bible calls it the course of human existence. Again, from your birth to your death is set on fire by your tongue. J.P. Green's and Young's Little Translation have the course of nature, which is, I don't know exactly what that means. Most English translations, though, for example, the English Standard Version, the NIV, the Holman Christian Study Bible have the course of life, and that makes perfectly good sense, and we're going to stick with that. In other words, your life, from the time you're born to the time you die, as you run your race course of your life, you're going to be escaping flames. You're going to be running through flames. You're going to have your body burnt because of fire set by your tongue, and your tongue is set on fire by hell. The metaphor is this, just as a human being goes into a forest, lights a match and sets the forest on fire, the devil takes your tongue like a match and he sets your life on fire and ruins you. Now, Adam Clark, God bless him, he's so smart. He's too smart in my opinion. He says that we should take that phrase literally, sets the wheel of life on fire. And he suggests that this is referring to a Greek wheel which was used to punish criminals and they would lash the criminals to the wheel set it on fire and, and turn it. He says that this type of punishment was known to the Jews. Well, that, that could be. I mean, I don't know. Sets the wheel of life on fire. So, in other words, you speak out of turn, gossip, slander, lies, whatever, and you might as well be put on a flaming wheel and broken on the wheel and punished. 
He also suggests the circulation of blood. Anger makes the blood circulate faster and the face flush. So the verse would read like this. The tongue sets the blood circulating on fire. No, that's not what it means. Clark also suggests that the term wheel of life is a rabbinic term that means the wheel of generations, referring to the successive generations of men. So the tongue will not only affect the generation that you're in, but also all of your descendants will be affected by the tongue of fire. The tongue which is set on fire by the devil. Well, could be, but it's much easier just to say the course of your life, and then we'll take it that way. This is serious business, folks. You've got to be careful what you say, especially married couples. You, you know, marriage counseling, they always say, don't ever say anything bad because you can't take it back, and that's the truth. Married couples feel like since they're married, they can just say whatever the heck they want to each other. I don't do it. I remember one time my wife came home, got a good deal at, I think it was Belk's, for getting a haircut. And she goes in there, and they shave her head off to where she looked like a frippin' boy. And so she comes back in, and yours truly, not being able to control my tongue, I tried. I remember biting it several times, maybe ten times. The blood was coming out of the sides of my tongue. I bit it so hard, and I finally just couldn't control it anymore. And I said, what happened to you? Did you have a sex change operation? Oh, brilliant my wife is very she didn't like the haircut either and she's very gentle type person who doesn't hold a grudge kind of even tempered and so she didn't hold it against me but boy that's the sort of comment that can set your life on fire (laughs) so be careful with your tongue now this idea that your tongue is set on fire by hell that's the same thing as saying your tongue is set on fire by the devil it's a figurative way of saying that as the NIV study bible gill and jameson fawcett and brown say so let's look at how the devil can set your tongue on fire so that you can... So the devil sets your tongue on fire, and then your tongue sets your life on fire and destroys you. John 8:44. You are of your father the devil, Jesus says to the Pharisees, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has not stood in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. When he tells a lie... He speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of liars. So the devil will set your tongue on fire by getting you to tell lies because he is a liar. Matthew 5.22, Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother, Jesus says, will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. In the Greek, fool is a milder word than moron. And so the punishment's a little bit worse when you say moron. That's hellfire is going to get you for that. So the idea is when you get angry with your brother and you start calling him names, you're going to be punished either by the Sanhedrin or hell. So when you get angry with your brother, bite your tongue. Don't say anything. Bite it till it bleeds. Psalm 52, 4, you love any words that destroy you, treacherous tongue. Sticks and stones can hurt my bones. But words can never hurt me. What a lie. Words can hurt. I mean, it's illegal to slander somebody. You can end up in court by slandering somebody, by defaming somebody. You treacherous tongue, as the psalmist says in Psalm 52. Proverbs 26, verse 20. Without wood, fire goes out. Without a gossip, conflict dies down. Oh, gossip. Did you hear that so-and-so did this? Did you hear that so-and-so did that? Here's some free legal advice. Don't gossip. That's the worst thing you could do. If you don't say anything, people can't use your words to attack you. Because sooner or later, somebody, especially these days when everybody's recording everybody, they'll come back and they'll get you. Jeremiah 9, 8. 
Their tongues are deadly arrows. They speak deception. With his mouth a man speaks peaceably with his friend, but inwardly he sets up an ambush. Sounds like politicians and diplomats, does it not? Speaking deception. Proverbs 16.27 A worthless man digs up evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. That pretty well matches what James says. Your speech is like fire. Your tongue is set on fire by hell, and then you light up the course of your life. You torch it. A worthless man digs up evil. Hmm, does that sound like today's Twitter mobs? Cancel culture? Let's go back and use our search capabilities to look back at everything that somebody's posted and find out something that he said that was not politically correct, and let's destroy him. Let's turn the Twitter mob loose on him. Let's let him lose his job so we can't support his family. Let's call him all kind of names while we hide in our basements with our computers and act morally self-righteous over everybody else. Proverbs calls that sort of person a worthless man digging up evil. Worthless. Actually, that's an understatement. They're worse than worthless. They're dangerous and disgusting. When a ma- Jameson Fawcett Brown says, when a man inflames others, he gets consumed by the flame himself. That reminds me one time I had a big 55-gallon drum of garbage I wanted to burn and Instead of getting the diesel fuel like I should have, I saw some gas, and I put the gas in there, and I knew it was going to be a little violent, but I was very careful. But I put that match in there, and that thing goes, boom, and singed my eyebrows. So, I didn't ever do that again. Use diesel fuel, not gasoline. That was really stupid. Well, you got a tongue that's full of gossip, slander, lies, deceit, deception, false flattery. It's just like a match that's just getting ready to be thrown on a lot of gasoline, and you do that, your eyebrows are going to get singed. In fact, you might get burnt up yourself. The tongue is set on fire by hell. By the way, that's the Greek word Gehenna, which is found here only, and also in Matthew 5.22, only two places, which is interesting. I've, I've found it's interesting. I get so mad at stuff, I want to be a little bit forceful, and, and I've gotten to where I say, there's no way in Gehenna I'm going to do that. Of course, nobody knows what I'm talking about, but at least it keeps me from cussing when cussing seems to be appropriate. James 3, verses 7 through 12, and we'll finish it up. Every sea creature, reptile, bird, or animal is tamed and has been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who are made by God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers, or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. Now twice James calls his readers brothers because he's giving them some hard exhortations. But remember, they're his brothers. You can take something from a brother a lot better than you can from an enemy. Now, James is pointing out a huge a huge irony when he says, We praise our Lord and Father with our tongue, and we curse men remaining God's likeness, God's image with our tongue. And that's a huge irony. Big difference, isn't it? See, Paul is talk, James is talking about how the tongue can create hellish effects. But he also acknowledges here that the tongue can also produce good effects. You praise God. You praise other people. You, you, you encourage people. You give people the scripture and that kind of stuff. You're helping them. So the tongue is a highly leveraged little piece of flesh. Leveraged for good or leveraged for evil. So this irony is continued in verse 10. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. That's weird. It's strange. It ought not to be that way. In fact, he says that. My brothers, these things should not be this way. And he gives the natural example. You get one spring of water. It's either sweet or it's bitter, but it's not both. 
Even nature, your tongue is even dumber than nature is. Here's another natural example. Fig tree produces figs, or an olive tree produces olives, but it doesn't produce both. So why does your tongue produce both cursing and praising? If you curse a man who is made in God's image, God's likeness, you might as well be cursing God himself. Of course, that's the idea behind capital punishment in Genesis 9-6. Whoever shed man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his image. You kill a man, you're trying to kill God, because the man is made in the image of God. You are lifting up your murderous hand against God himself, so you're going to die for that. Well, likewise, you speak against a man made in God's image. Now, you've got to be careful here. I, I don't, you know, if you, you talk this way too much, and pretty soon you, end, you, you neuter Christians and say, oh, we can't say anything bad. Hey, Jesus said a lot of bad things about bad people. So did Paul. It's everywhere. James himself right now is saying some bad stuff about human beings, about what they do. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about just because you're angry at somebody, you go heap curses on their mouth. Or you have motives of selfish, selfishness and evil in your heart. You're not talking about standing up for justice. You know, a soldier's got to have a gun. And guns do violence. Well, but the soldier is protecting the innocent. That's perfectly all right. Likewise, you might have to use your tongue to protect the innocent. Look what Paul said to Timothy about Hymenaeus and Alexander, the hyperproterous heretics of his day. He said they were blasphemous. Their teaching was spreading like gangrene. They were shipwreckers of the faith. He didn't mess around with these people. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? You brood of snakes. You whitewashed tombs. You traversed the country from east to west because you're children of hell and various things like that. I mean, you know, we don't want to get the wrong idea here. James is not talking about speaking strongly against heresy or evil and protecting the innocent with your tongue and all that. You don't want to have to do it, but every now and then you do. You have to do it. I remember one time I, um, two brothers of mine were being viciously attacked by a, a teacher who was, let's shall I try to be polite about this, he was a little bit self-inflated, and he decided he was just going to have to destroy my two friends. And he was going around everywhere, everywhere he would teach in America, he would trash my two good friends. So I wrote an article about this man. I, I listened to a lot of his teaching. I had some video, and I would stop it and get the time and say, okay, this is what he said here, and this is what he said there. And I wrote a long article, which eventually spread pretty, I don't know if it went viral, but it was pretty soon all over the Internet. And I basically call this guy a theological thug, because he was. That is not cursing somebody. Well, anyway, in the course of trying to defend my friend, my friend's wife says, I don't think you're showing love. And I said, look, there is nothing personal. I said to, you know, women are like that. They can't stand, you know, it hurts their idea of relationship in general. Women are like that. And so this wife was like that, too. And she was saying, and her husband had been trashed terribly by this guy. So she, you know, she had reason to be upset with him. But she says, I don't think you're showing love. And I said, look, there's nothing personal about this. This is business. This has to be taken care of. And so I learned the hard way about how people love to say, oh, but you don't love me. Hyperpreterous heretics are the same way. Oh, you don't love me when you say that we're heretics. That's not what James is talking about. He's talking about cursing somebody. And, and when you oppose somebody, you better be opposing them for what they're doing and not for who they are. You better not be attacking them ad hominem. You better be attacking their words and not their beings because they're made in the image of God, even if they are idiots. Idiots are made in the image of God. So it's a fine line and you got to be careful because your emotions can get in the way. When James says, can a fig tree produce olives and so forth? Can a saltwater spring yield fresh water? Of course, nature can't do that. 
So that means a cursing and praising Christian is doing something so contradictory that not even nature can do it. Not even nature compares to that phenomenon of you cursing people with your mouth while you praise God at the same time. Don't do it. It's called defamation of character. Ladies and gentlemen, we're finished with James chapter 1 verses, chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. In our next audio, we will finish James chapter 3 and do verses 13 through 18 and talk about the wisdom which comes from above. Hope to see you in our next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.